football fans and welcome to episode 131 of college football throwdown i'm your co-host alex schmitz and today i'm joined as always by my dad peter schmitz hello husker fans and college football fans hello everybody we are here today to talk about the nebraska cornhuskers upcoming game against indiana as well as recapping the big games from week four and what's coming up in week five for the national side of college football uh And for those who may be listening to this podcast for the first time, we are a father-son duo here to talk about college football by college football fans for college football fans with an emphasis on our favorite team, the Nebraska Cornhuskers. I like it. (laughs) I bet you do. We've we've done 130 plus episodes, so hopefully you like it. Exactly. (laughs) All right. It's, Uh, It's my chance to talk with you, son. That's true. That's true. Um. But before we dive into all the news and crazy upsets, uh, we're going to stick to our tradition and crack open a beverage. Uh, I have my same thing from last week, the Big Wave Golden Ale from Kona Brewing Company. Awesome. That's a good beer. I remember drinking that over in Hawaii. Um, I uh, I am also going with something I, I had previously. Uh, I still happen to have one of the... Uh, Oberon, Bell's Oberon American Wheat Ale from right here in the good good old state of Michigan. Mm-hmm. All right, here we go. All right. Now, the Oberon is well known to be drank with a citrus. It's a nice summer ale that is only made in the summer. Mm-hmm. Yes, you said last time that you're, you're low on your stock. Right, and I and and that's why I was discussing with your mom if I could have permission to drink this or not because it's one that she's inclined to drink, and uh, we're running really really low. This might be the last one for all I know. <laughs> well, isn't she a nice wife then? She is wonderful. Yes. All right, true love right there, folks. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, so before we dive into the big games from week four and talk about our predictions that we gave last week, um, probably the biggest piece of news in the general college football world uh, is that there has been another uh, prominent uh, coach firing to go alongside Scott Frost at Nebraska. Uh, Jeff Collins at Georgia Tech was fired. Uh, they're not having a good start to their season. Um, so it, we'll be keeping an eye on that, you know, the coaching carousel, as it's called, uh, as it progresses throughout this year, because obviously we're in the market. Uh, and last year was a very crowded market. So we're kind of hoping that uh, not as many big, big schools open up this time. Right. And frankly, every year is a crowded market for coaching changes. It's just a matter of how many big time jobs are open where, you know, they're going to slam dunk be uh, able to uh, entice the best available, you know, candidates. Um, But it also indicates that, you know, uh, I mean, Nebraska firing their coach effectively after just three games um, is uh, about as early in the season as has historically ever happened. And, uh, but it's not unprecedented, right? It's happened in that third, fourth game, for the last few years, it used to be that everybody waited until near the end of the season before they fired their coach. But in this day and age now, everybody's trying to get the jump. And with the signing day now happening effectively in December, right, uh, you you have to hope to get your new coach in place in advance of that date. 
so they can be out recruiting. Mm-hmm. Very true. We talked about that uh, in terms of USC with Clay Helton, right? That he was also fired very early in their Correct. season. Correct. And there's a third fairly significant job already opened as well, which was Herm Edwards being let go or announcing that he was being let go at Arizona State. So we've got three, you know, power five schools now with openings. Mm-hmm. Very true. Very true. Uh, then in terms of uh, a last podcast, we gave our prediction for an upcoming game and we decided to center in on uh, Ohio State versus Wisconsin. Uh, I I predicted that they would win. Ohio State would win uh, 41-24. Uh, you gave mm-hmm. a lower scoring uh, score of 35-17. Uh, yep. But it ended up kind of surpassing either of our expectations in that uh, Ohio State won 52-21. to uh, I think it was 21 to nothing pretty quick in the first quarter. And I kind of turned the game off at that point. Cause I'm like, well, this is already feeling over. Right. Well, and, and it really was right. I mean, those 21 points that Wisconsin were kind of uneventful in terms of their being quote, quote, in the game, Ohio state really didn't get threatened. I would say during the course of that game. Mm-hmm. Yep. And their quarterback, uh, CJ Stroud is definitely looking like he's back in form. Um, I know he's had kind of some spurts, right? Like that Notre Dame game, right? He wasn't playing so great at the beginning of the year, um, but seems like he's back on track now. Exactly. I would agree. Yeah. Um, uh, but probably one of the craziest upsets from uh, this past week four of college football, and one we didn't talk about on the previous podcast, was Kansas State versus Oklahoma, who, of course, last uh, last week uh, thrashed us, or I guess not week four, but week three of college football thrashed Nebraska. Um, and Kansas State, of course, is now the home to our previous starting quarterback, Adrian Martinez, for his fifth year, COVID year uh, starting position. Uh, and K- Kansas State managed to pull out the upset in Oklahoma of 41-34, with Martinez in particular uh, putting on a great performance. He did. He he played spectacularly, and I I want to uh, uh, take a little time to acknowledge my prediction that this would in fact evolve into truth that Adrian would be a great fit at, at uh, Kansas State. I mentioned that uh, when that transfer first occurred, uh, once it was announced, I was like, "That's a that's a good fit for him," because uh, uh, Coach Kleinman is a is a great uh, college football coach. In fact, he's on our list, right? Uh, the big question mark with him is, can he recruit? But there's no question he can coach. And uh, uh, and I felt like Adrian, in that much more simplified system that they use so that they can have continuity and consistency of execution instead of all the things that he was being asked to do at Nebraska, uh, this is a much better fit for Adrian and his skill set. And he was able to put those on display. 382 yards total offense, I think it was with 150 plus rushing and then the rest passing. So just, a, a, I mean, if you were going to, you know, write up a list of things you wanted your quarterback to do, he did them. Yep. I actually have the stats here. He was 21 of 34 for 234 yards passing. And then he rushed it 21 times for 148 yards. Um, wow. Though one interesting thing is when you look, I looked at the stats for the game and Oklahoma actually, 
uh, superseded them in most stats in terms of like yards, rush, both rushing and passing. And there were no turnovers yeah. in the game on either side. Um, but the stats that really stood out were time of possession, where Kansas State had like 10 more minutes of time of possession. Uh, yep. Third downs, where Kansas State was better. And penalties, where Oklahoma had 11 for uh, 87 yards, which set them back a lot. Let's let's talk about one of the things you just said there. Third down conversions, right? Mm-hmm. What what is something what is something that your dad always talks about? Just get the first down. Exactly. You get the first downs and it leads to touchdowns. It dramatically increases your ability to score touchdowns. And uh and that's what they did. They they took advantage of Oklahoma's defense, which again, because of their their head coach has been a spectacular defensive coordinator, but he also has a reputation for being quite aggressive because he has historically been at places where he had basically better athletes than, than, than across the field. But the downside of that aggressive behavior is that occasionally good coaches are going to be able to take advantage of your aggressiveness, right? They're going to be able to take away your athletic advantage by basically letting your athletes run themselves out of position and things of that nature, right? And and uh, and I think that's what uh, Kansas State's coaching staff did. They outcoached Oklahoma's staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was. I, I got to see like the fourth quarter of the game live. I saw that uh, Oklahoma was losing, yep. but and they were only down mm-hmm. by seven at the time. Um, but I thought, okay, I'll tune into this. And it was key to me that it couldn't remain a seven point lead going into the end of the fourth quarter because I knew that Oklahoma would be able to score fast if the time came for it. So I felt like they needed to get a 14 point lead. And then uh, I think Oklahoma did score. Uh, K-State got the ball back and then, or I'm sorry, they didn't score. They forced the punt and K-State got the ball back. And then Adrian uh, led the team on a really nice drive. You know, like you say, just focus on getting first downs, no huge 50 yard plays or whatever. Um, And they got went up by 14 and sure enough, then Oklahoma scored immediately, and then the ball came right. back to them. And that's where I was yep. like, okay, if this is Nebraska, Adrian, uh, this is where, you know, uh, the pressure gets to him. Right. right. He throws a pick or something, you know, and then Oklahoma gets the ball and scores seven, and it's tied up, right? And then it's, uh, you know, your morality is low. Your morale is low. Um, but no, he, he held it together. Um, and they had a running back number 22, who's like five, six, but just couldn't right. be tackled by these guys, like twice his weight, which was really right. impressive to watch. Yes, no, you're right. And, and, um, uh, you know, Adrian, uh, uh, really led them too. I mean, you could, he didn't have that, um, hesitation. He didn't, you know, he was decisive, Right. Mm-hmm. On his throws, on his decisions to run, he just had a lot less that he was having to process through his brain, I think. And as a result, he was able to allow his instinct and his athletic IQ, if you will, just take over. Right. And uh, it leads to better result. And right. you know, Nebraska saw glimpses of that occasionally when when he wasn't in those tense situations. Right? He he was pretty good playing from from a lead when he had all that decision-making to go. But if he's in a tight situation, hey, you know what? You need to be really, really good at whatever it is you do and and shrink what you do uh, and then add on to it. And that was Tom Osborne's philosophy, and I'm a big believer in that. Right. That's what good football coaches do. That's what Kleiman does. 
That's what P.J. Fleck up at Minnesota does. You know, what they do, they do extremely well. Mm -hmm. Well, it was interesting, though. The announcers kept mentioning that this was by far Adrian's best night and that in their previous three games, which they were two and one coming into that Oklahoma game, uh, it had not been clicking so well in terms of his passing and things of that nature. Um, Yeah. you figure he's in a new offense. It's going to take some time, but I I would expect and, and anticipate that he's going to play well a number of times from here on out. Not every game. He might still have some bad games. Don't get me wrong. You know the the Adrian we knew is still the Adrian that exists, right? And you put him in the right pressure situation. You know I don't know what uh, uh, Kansas State's offensive line is like. So how well are they going to be able to protect him across the rest of the Big Twelve? Uh, schedule that he has to play. And that's going to, I think, dictate a lot about how he does. Now, frankly, you probably played the team with the best defense from an athlete standpoint that you're going to play all season. You know, I'm assuming they get, they have to play Texas at some point. So when they, when they play Texas, they're going to see a, a team with some incredible athletes, but I don't necessarily think that's a team with a better defense than Oklahoma. So I, I, I think if uh, I would be on the, plus side of what what it's going to look like for Adrian as the rest of the season evolves as long as he stays healthy. Right. That would be the one criticism I would have. If he ran it 21 times, that's too many. Right? You you want your quarterback maybe running that ball 15 times, 16 times maybe, but not 21 because you run you run him 21 times every game, he's going to end up getting hurt. Right. Which and obviously he suffered with injury problems in pretty much At every of his year, every one of his years at Nebraska. Absolutely. Um, one thing I want to credit you for is I believe it was after the Georgia Southern game when we were previewing our game against Oklahoma. You mentioned how we were able to keep it close with Oklahoma last year when we did have Adrian as our quarterback. And that one of the facets of that was that as a running threat, right, Oklahoma needed to respect that. And, and Adrian was able to beat them with his feet in certain situations. And we didn't have that asset so much uh, with Casey Thompson. And then right. in this game, there were a lot of situations where that uh, blitz style of uh, Oklahoma's defense did penetrate their offensive line, but Adrian was able to scramble away in those situations that he did so many times in Nebraska, right, and make some positive yardage out of a broken play. I agree. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and one last interesting stat. Um, I've seen a lot of funny comments on the internet of people saying that uh, – you know, Oklahoma's leaving the Big 12 to escape Kansas State uh, because uh, <laughs> since 2019, Kansas State is up three to one against Oklahoma, mm-hmm. which is pretty crazy. Oh, I know. Well, and and Oklahoma, I, I think Oklahoma's maybe two and two in the last four years against Iowa State. I mean, there's some weird numbers there with a couple of those teams in the Big 12 who really never sniffed a conference championship, but found a way to beat, you know, Oklahoma or Texas, one or the other, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if not both. Very, yep. very true. Well, and, and again, that, good coaching, right? That's that's taking, and, 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 and frankly, it's a little bit of Oklahoma taking Kansas State lightly, right? They read the press clippings. They understand that physically the, that team is not nearly as good as us. We have way better athletes at every spot pretty much. Maybe one or two that, that, that Kansas State has a comparable or even a better athlete but out of the 22 positions on the field, you know, 20 of them, Oklahoma has the better player. So those kids got a little too confident. Mm-hmm. Very true. Um, 
And then one other uh, important game that we did talk about a bit last time was uh, Clemson versus Wake Forest um, and how important that would be for Clemson's hopes of uh, getting to the playoff. Um, and it ended up coming into the wire. Wake Forest is actually winning in the fourth quarter, uh, but Clemson was able to score a touchdown late to uh, tie up the ball game. And it went into double overtime, and Clemson ended up winning 51-45. Um, I was a bit frustrated with Wake Forest because they, on the last overtime, Clemson scored pretty quickly, but then they did stop them on the two-point conversion that's mandatory in the second overtime. So right. Wake had the opportunity to just win the game outright, right? Um, yep. And then they get the ball on their side, and then they throw it four downs in a row, get nothing, and lose the game when earlier they had been running it a bunch in the fourth quarter, you know, and having some success of at least getting first downs. Right. So I'm like, right. Why do you go away from that at this critical time? Right. Well, and, and you don't know, maybe somebody was hurt uh, or, or maybe they felt like they had seen or had been setting up some pass plays and they were anticipating if we have to go into the overtime, we want to use these plays because we think we will have set them up for success because of the plays we ran running plays we ran during the game. You know what I mean? Do some play action, whatever. I mean, there might be some strategy that was in play there that we don't know about. And it just didn't, it failed to produce the result they expected. But I would agree with you that in my opinion, when coaches do that, that I, I refer to that as over coaching, right? <laughs> That's when you're thinking too damn much. The game's simple. Keep it that way. Use the data that's most relevant to you. At that point, at the fourth quarter or, you know, in an overtime situation, the, the thing that's important is what has happened in that game. What your game plan should mean nothing at that point, right? right. I mean, you've, you had plenty of time to execute your game plan. Now's the time to pick the plays that you believe you're going to have the greatest success with. And usually that should – you have all this recent data against this opponent – Use that data right now. Right. Well, I think talking about the overthinking things, I think that gets to your uh, our shared hatred of this prevent defense that always comes out in the fourth quarter when somebody's up by one touchdown, one score, right? You know, right. And they like try to prevent the big play and in the process just give the team free dink and dunk first downs that they, then they do play after play ended up scoring the touchdown anyway. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm again, why would you go away from all the prep you did and all the success you've had during the course of the game? Uh, when you most need your defense to perform mm -hmm. it, it, to me, the, the concept of a prevent defense only makes sense, only makes sense. Um, in very, very rare situations where you're just trying to get them to run clock because you have a comfortable lead. If it's at all close, you don't do it. You right. just keep playing your defense. Now, that doesn't mean you line up and play the most aggressive style. I get backing off a little, but not that, not like that. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so I'm going to go over a series of games here um, that were all where the uh, favorite to win did win, uh, but the game was closer probably than many were imagining. Um, and there were right. quite a few of those this week. Uh, USC versus Oregon State, uh, they won 17 14. Uh, Kentucky versus Northern Illinois won 31 23. Uh, Kansas versus Duke, 35 27. Uh, Ole Miss versus Tulsa, 35 27. Uh, Oregon versus Washington State, 44 41. And Tennessee versus Florida, uh, 
Was that? Did you say Oregon Washington State was that close? I didn't see that score. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow, that surprises me. Yep. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, Oregon's been mm. kind of up and down, right? I think their game right. last week they had a oppressive performance, uh, and then mm-hmm. not so much this week. Well, they they got their asses handed to them by Georgia, but you know what? Most teams would get their ass handed to them by Georgia. So that that game, I just kind of wrote off as you know that's just Georgia being Georgia. Uh, but that I felt like Oregon was still, and I still feel probably that Oregon is one of the more talented teams in the Pac-12, but. That makes me question whether Oregon is where I thought they were. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, that one was particularly close. Um, let's see here. I didn't watch the Kansas-Duke game, but I know you saw some of that. Uh, yes, I did. And that game was surprisingly good. Um, I, I, I feel like there were, there were so many moments where Kansas seemed like they were on the verge of taking control of the game, but they simply couldn't slow down or stop Duke consistently enough. You know, they were executing at a pretty high level on offense. They were doing a lot of good things. And at times their defense would look good. But again, they they seemed to give up some plays, some third downs. Again, that third down term comes in again uh, that, that allowed Duke to, hang, to kind of hang around. And then maybe they got a little tight at, uh, as the game played out. I mean, it was at Kansas, right? And you're playing Duke, who lost to Northwestern. Um, so, um, or no. Duke Duke made a beat Northwestern. I don't even remember now, but I, I know that it was kind of an ugly game. Um, but bottom line is, I would have expected a Kansas team that I think is is beginning to emerge to win that game more comfortably. Uh, but I still saw an awful lot that I liked from KU. And keep in mind, last year most people would have said KU is the worst team in Division One, certainly D- Division One Power Five of all the conferences. And now they're starting to kick some tail right so uh duke did beat northwestern 31 23 the week after we lost to them so right okay mm-hmm. um and i watched the uh, uh recap of the tennessee florida game um okay that was one where i would say tennessee was really was in control of the game um for the most part from what it looked like from the highlights um you know they had a pretty solid lead on them um and florida had some turnovers that were very costly for them. Uh, but, but then they managed to, you know, that fourth quarter offense, right? They scored a touchdown late, went for two, didn't get it. Um, I think they went for uh, an onside kick and didn't get it. But then then I think Tennessee maybe turned the ball over, so they got another chance. They scored again, went for the two-point conversion, didn't get it. So it was 33-38 with, like, you know, a minute left or 30 seconds left, you know, not much time. They go for the onside right. kick again, and this time they do get it. It was actually a great bounce up high, um, but they were down by uh, five now, right? So they needed uh, needed a touchdown. They couldn't settle for a field goal, um, and they basically they ran out of time. They couldn't get it done. Right. Uh, so ended like that. But if I was a Tennessee fan, it would be like too close for comfort for sure. Right, right. Well, and again, uh, I, I think at this point in the season – Almost every team, including the Alabamas and the Georgias and the Ohio States of the world, they have weaknesses that they know they still are need to work on. They, you know, they they can self scout and look at themselves and say, "Okay, I know that we're still not where we need to be here or there." Uh, but um, and Tennessee is certainly one of those teams. 
only a few at the top, like the Alabamas and Georgias and Ohio States, would be able to look at their team and say, okay, we're pretty confident we've got the answer to these areas of concern. We just need time and repetitions and they'll be fine. Where uh, a Tennessee probably has one or two weaknesses that, frankly, they don't have the personnel on the, on the squad right now to, to eliminate that weakness permanently. They have ways to shore it up, but that's about as far as it goes, right? Um, and so that's where you get a lot of these tight scores because, again, I think the quality of scouting and coaching just continues to elevate as time goes on with all the resources and all the data that people can use. And so it gets harder and harder to hide a weakness where I think it used to be easier to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll get back to that later. Um, one of the games that was, uh, you know, kind of a close win for the favorite that I didn't mention because I wanted to specify it is Baylor versus Iowa State, uh, which was played at Iowa State. And Baylor won uh, 31-24. Um, I watched the highlights for that. And once again, it kind of seemed like, you know, Baylor was in control of the game uh, for the most part. Uh, but then Iowa State was able to kind of get some big plays, uh, come back to co- try to come back uh, later on. Right. Well, and I watched a little bit of that game live. I didn't watch the summary at the end, so I, I didn't really see the end of the game. Maybe you have some more insight into that. Uh, but uh, again, um, kind of interesting for Nebraska fans because, of course, both of those coaches are being mentioned um, to one degree or another as possible candidates for our uh, head coaching job. And, uh, um, you know, both of them appear to me to be pretty sound in their coaching philosophy and, and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I would look at both of those systems, both offensively and defensively, and say, I, I think I could live with with the kind of things that they're trying to get accomplished. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was interesting from that perspective, uh, certainly for Nebraska fans. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we're both fans of Dave Aranda here from Baylor, for sure. So it was cool to see, you know, uh, his players out there on this field. I know that they did definitely get quite a few sacks on Iowa State's quarterback. Um, yes. So that was a factor in the game. I agree. I agree. Uh, it's just that, you know, the fact that I think Baylor was expected to be the better team and the, and they weren't able to put this thing away um, does suggest that, that Baylor, again, like, a, like most teams, has a few weaknesses they need to work on. Mm-hmm. Very true. Um, and this was an interesting one, uh, Texas A&M versus Arkansas. Uh, Texas A&M was ranked 23rd while Arkansas was ranked 10th. And Texas A&M won uh, 23-21. Um, I watched the uh, the recap of that game, um, and frankly, it's one that Arkansas should have won. Uh, they had they were on yeah. like their own goal line, fumbled it, and then the that fumble turned into a crazy play where the dude ran it uh, ran it down the field, got stopped, then handed the ball off to another Texas A&M guy, and the second guy ran it down the field for a touchdown. So a touchdown for Arkansas basically got completely flipped into a touchdown for Texas A&M. Um, yep. And then Arkansas even went for a game-winning field goal at the end of the game, and it dinked off the pole off the uprights. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I didn't watch that game at all, but, you know, I, I would say this. You know, Arkansas, uh, to a large extent, is uh, the, my example of a team that's 
that's committing itself to running the football in a way that in recent years, you know, you would describe Wisconsin and, and certainly the academies or some of the academies and what Nebraska used to do. So I, I have great admiration for that. But it also shows the weakness of, of that approach, which is when you play another team that is uh, athletically equal or even slightly superior to you, even if you are able to physically control a line of scrimmage and have success per, you know, moving the ball down the field, the challenge is that uh, one mistake is magnified because the number of possessions you give yourself when you run that kind of ball control offense is diminished from what it would be if you threw the ball more just because of the rules and how the clock stops, right? So that's one of those things where, frankly, you don't have the room for error to make that fumble. You just don't. When you're playing a Texas A&M, if you're Arkansas and you want to win that game, you got to play uh, within uh, the discipline uh, of the system you've got, you've committed to. And they made one too many mistakes. Yep, very true. Speaking of mistakes, um, that brings up one of the biggest upsets from last week, which was uh, Middle Tennessee versus Miami, uh, <laughs> where yeah. Middle Tennessee won 45-31. Um, I watched the highlight of that game. Um, if there's any Nebraska fans out there who still have uh, rough feelings for Miami from the 80s and 90s, it might give you some uh, karmic justice to watch that because, A, their stadium was like 90% empty, which was sad to see, uh, and B, they fumbled the ball literally three times in the first quarter. Like the first three series, I think they fumbled the ball. Uh, and they were just letting these – Middle Tennessee was getting these huge pass plays for 50 yards or a touchdown, like over and over again, just blown coverages out the wazoo. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. Miami finds himself in a very similar situation to Nebraska in that they have had a, a, a turnstile of coaches, right. In recent years. And now the guy they have now, you know, they enticed him away from, I think, uh, Oregon or Washington, where I don't know where Cristobal was before. Um, I just don't remember the uh, who all's there. But but the bottom line is, uh, uh, I wonder how long they'll be patient with that coach. Okay, because Miami's you know history, tradition, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know their alumni and such will not stand for this for very long. And a, a loss of that magnitude to that type of a team. That, that's the kind of thing that affects recruiting. That makes every recruit second guess whether, do I really want to go and be a part of that shit show for the next three years while they figure out that the coach they have isn't getting the job done? Or do I go somewhere where I think I have more confidence will be successful? Right. Uh, so you're correct. He was at Oregon before he went to Miami. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's bizarre, but he's got history there. What's, what's the coach's name? Do you have that right there? I can't remember. Well, no, you, you had it right. Mario Cristobal. It is. Okay. The guy's a great recruiter. You know, he did phenomenal things at Oregon recruiting, but then um, wasn't producing on the, on the field. You know what I mean? Results of his team's performance were not there. And, uh, and that's why Oregon kind of uh, wasn't sad to see him go kind of thing. Um, and uh, I don't remember who instigated it. I don't know if he got fired from Oregon and then got the job at Miami, but I, I feel like there was a bit of a swap between those two schools. Bottom line is, uh, that's not a good look for Miami at all. And you're right. As someone who grew, grew up through the 70s and 80s and, and uh, early 90s, um, you know, until we reached our pinnacle of success in the mid, uh, early and mid-90s, there was no team I hated more than 
Miami. They were the Antichrist. <laughs> there you go. Well, I'm just on his Wikipedia, and apparently Miami signed a uh, 10-year, $80 million contract with this guy. So, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, I, and, and here's the reality. If they show patience, he has shown his ability to recruit everywhere he's been. I mean, he's just got a dynamic guy. Must be. Yeah. And, uh, and so th- they'll, they'll restock the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, coffers, the coffers, so to speak, you bet they'll do it and, and they'll be, they'll be good. But I question whether with his coaching, they'll ever get to, to uh premiere. Right. You know? Well, I was, I was also thinking of watching that game about the comparisons between Miami and Nebraska, cause they're similar and that teams that were great in the eighties and nineties, uh, that have fallen on kind of harder times. Uh, though looking at their schedule um, or their records, rather, for like the past 20 years, their worst season, I think, was like a six and six. So they have not reached the lows that Nebraska has, but they have been right. pretty consistently, you know, it's been like seven win type seasons. You know, they had one where they got to 10 wins in like 2017 and the not too distant uh, past. Um, but yeah, they've been through a lot of coaches, like you said. Right. Yeah. They haven't had the lows that we've had, but they have had, well, and again, it shows the patience that really Nebraska's had with a number of their coaches. I mean, we, we kept Bo Pelini way beyond where most national pundits felt he should have been fired, not for on field, uh, results as much as his off the field antics and his, his, you know, almost, um, rebellious behavior within the athletic department right um uh, and obviously everyone agreed that we we waited too long on scott frost uh, we've shown more patience than the average uh university with regard to our coaching changes overall yeah i would say that's true um and then the last game we'll mention here is uh, another uh, nice win for nebraska fans uh texas tech upsetting texas uh oh, yeah. in overtime um, and in the overtime, um, Texas like fumbled the ball immediately, basically on their overtime possession. So it kind of made it a easy win for Texas Tech to just go down there and kick the field goal to win. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. And it, it pissed me off that Texas Tech didn't win it in regulation. They should have won it in regulation. It just I, I was angry with some of the decisions that Texas Tech made uh, and allowed you know, um, uh, uh, Texas to drive down and tie the ball game up uh, late in regulation. Uh, you could almost, again, you could see it coming. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was glad that uh, that Texas then made the mistake in overtime to make it easier for Texas Tech because, frankly, if Texas had put pressure on them by scoring, um, I think Texas Tech may not have been successful in, in closing that out. Anytime Texas loses at anything, it's a good day. Day, I will admit, I was actually I was rooting for Texas to beat Bama in Week One when they came close. Well, that would have been just for uh, interesting, fascinating conversation, and I and I love it that they have fallen on some hard times. Uh, Texas, I mean, they have not looked good since that game, right? Like uh, I, I, when I saw that game and score, I'm thinking, wow, Texas, they might be turning it around. They they might finally have their guy. And their their coach that's going to do well, and then you know they they've kind of laid an egg here for a few weeks. It'll be interesting to see the Oklahoma Texas game this year. Yeah, that definitely will be interesting to see. Um, 
And the the topic that uh, I want to mention just briefly is something I've observed of this season of college football so far um, and kind of a more of a general trend over the past few years um, is it seems like to me, at least in terms of like the overall talent level, right, and coaching level across Division One, you know, Power Five, well, actually over uh, just college football in general, I should say, um, is that it seems like the tippy top of college football, you know, your Alabamas, your Georgias, you know, they've kind of threw all the money and recruiting, you know, benefits and all that sort of stuff, you know, have kind of been able to get a step beyond, you know, everybody else, which is why we've Absolutely. seen this recurring cycle of the same teams in the playoff over and over again. Um, but then also on the lower end, right, the, you know, when Bo Pelini came into the Big Ten, right, your Northwesterns of the world, your Purdue's, your Rutgers, you know, uh, Iowa, things like that, you know, um, we could kind of reliably count on the fact that we'd be able to beat them usually. Um, but it feels like in the past decade, you know, they've all gotten uh, better, you know, to where you can't just write them off, right? Like they're a legitimate threat or like, or a Kansas state. Uh, and then even these FCS schools, right? We've seen a number of FCS schools upset uh, bigger names in this season already. Um, so I'm just kind of curious if you agree that that's a trend that you're seeing, you know, and what do you think is the root cause of that? Well, you know what? That was such a long question. I'm not sure I understand the question, so I can answer it right away. <laughs> right. Um, Sorry. Basically, I'll, I'll simplify it. H- how do you think, like the the mid tier Power Five schools, as well as like even the lower level, you know, non Power Five schools, have kind of elevated their play over the past five to ten years? I think that's because the way we are forced to coach football today even though the coaches are more sophisticated and their game planning and their scheming, I would give coaches, uh, you know, uh, credit for having improved those skills, right? The ability to prepare a team has been dramatically altered in a negative fashion, in my opinion, by the, the, the NCAA rules regarding practice. Okay. That has to do with how much contact teams can have officially. And, um, uh, and uh, limits on, you know, uh, spring practice and fall practice preparation days before the games start. I think as a result, development for the uh, for the teams is is hampered, right? So those teams with better athletes aren't able to maximize what those athletes can do for them um, relative to these other teams, and and so I I think that's it. And then also. Uh, from uh, from the standpoint of um, um, not athleticism but just skill level, there's more players coming out of high school who are adequate, right? They are good enough to play positions, right? And so you get these mid-level teams, and they're able to have success against the upper-tier teams if those upper-tier teams are mistake-prone or don't execute at a high enough level. And that's where these coaches who tend to be rabid detail-oriented guys uh, are consistently the ones that win. And if you're not a detail person, if you're a laissez-faire kind of approach guy because you think that's what you need to be to, to you know, be liked by your players or whatever or to be on the recruiting trail, that can come up and bite you in the ass. And, you know, Scott's probably an example of that to some degree as well. I think he, was, he clearly was not giving the kind of effort that 
you know, that we would expect our head coach to give. And as a result, our guys were just not prepared from a detail standpoint, never were. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good explanation. And what you mentioned earlier in the podcast kind of caught my ear about like the increase in data, right. And being able to uh, come up with these complex game plans and study for your opponent, you know, and all that sort of stuff um, has probably helped yep. too. And the internet helping probably smaller schools, right. Be able to reach out more and things like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that's just an interesting trend. We'll see if it continues. Uh, throughout this year of college football. Well, and over the next few years, because keep in mind, I mean, this whole NIL and portal thing, I mean, they're still so new. We're really not going to fully grasp uh, how to na- navigate that and who does it effectively and who doesn't for another four or five years, right? It's going to take at least a full recruiting cycle of five years, if not more, before we're going to be able to witness trends. I mean, you think about it, you know, Nebraska did very well in the portal, in the offseason by almost every measure uh, objectively, right? But these players that we've got, they're not showing on the field. And I don't think we're alone in that. I think a lot of these NIL-based portal transfers, some have done really well. You know, Adrian might be an example of one who's really taken off. And if you're, uh, if you're inserting one or two of those guys into the entire roster of, of a already stable team and, and culture, that's probably easier to do. But when you try to do a wholesale change, that's a swing and you're either going to hit a home run or you're going to strike out. And, you know, two years ago, uh, Mel Tucker at Michigan State did that, right? He recruited a ton. Now, the very first year of the portal, he got a ton of those guys. And, and it translated to a massively successful season for Michigan State, okay? Uh, but But then... He didn't follow that up necessarily with, you know, another great year and another great year. You know what I mean? So the, the, the record's still out on whether or not that's truly a path to success. Right. Long-term success, especially. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be definitely be something interesting to watch uh, going forward. Cause like you say, it'll take time for us to truly evaluate it. Um, right. So now we'll transition to talking about uh, the Nebraska Cornhuskers as well as this uh, game against Indiana. Uh, they actually did play uh, last week and against Cincinnati and lost uh, 45-24. Uh, so they're 3-1 and one going into this game, which is being played at home at night on homecoming in Lincoln. Um, so you'd like to think, you know, that we'll have uh, that advantage at the very least. Um and I know uh, Mickey Joseph, our coach, uh, had a press conference today on Tuesday. Uh, and he mentioned that uh, Indiana's fast-paced offense, you know, I think they still had a bunch of plays in that game, even yeah. though they only scored 24 yeah. points. I think he said they had 103 offensive plays. Right. That's a, that's a huge number. Uh, you know, a typical game is somewhere between 60 and maybe 72. That that would be the range of a typical offensive play. Now, in this day and age, with all these spread offenses and the fast-paced offenses, you know that climbed up to about ninety uh, in previous years. But to get over a hundred, that's going really fast. Mm-hmm. And he also mentioned that um, 
uh, Bill Bush, who's been promoted to fill our defensive coordinator position, has worked to kind of take away some things that Eric Shenander was teaching the kids and simplify the defense, which is what we kind of expected would probably happen um, and may lead to um, increased performance from them on the night. Um, but definitely, I think slowing them down, you know, and forcing them to go um, – forcing them out on third down situations, right? Because if you have a hundred plays like that, right, that means you're j- just going for a lot of short plays, just trying to get first downs, you know, yep. that kind of style, which we honestly like. Um, and that that's the thing that if it's successful, will really wear your doubt guys down by the fourth quarter. Uh, so I think t- for us to have success in this game, it's important that we're able to um, slow them down, not keep them in system uh, from the first quarter, I would say. Uh, you you hit it, man. That is absolutely right, Alex. Um, I think that is the key defensively for us is when, when we talk about simplifying, you can't oversimplify and then find yourself not having enough defensive scheme to defend all the variety. Because one of the other things about a fast-paced team, part of their purpose is to confuse you, right? They're not lining up to overwhelm you necessarily. They're lining up at a very fast pace to wear you out mentally as well as physically to get you to line up wrong. And now we've got a team that's basically only had two weeks to, to be coached under this new defensive coordinator and this new system that Billy Bush is going to try to implement. So his hands are uh, coach Bush's hands are somewhat tied because he can't change nomenclature too much. He can't change the defensive calls and responsibilities. I mean, again, this is something that has always driven me nuts is, you know, uh, Alex, going back to the 1970s when I played football at the high school level, I was given a, a playbook as a seventh grader. OK, OK. And and other than getting a, a certain number of complexities added uh, uh, as we move towards varsity, we basically were playing out of the same playbook that the seniors were playing out of. OK. From the very get-go, the school you went to here in uh, Traverse City, St. Francis, here in Traverse City, same same thing. the The playbook that you guys were getting in seventh and eighth grade uh, had a lot of the same plays that are still being used to this day by St. Francis High School. Right, and you can't then, in the middle of a season, for example, at Power Five level, you know, magically snap your fingers and have these guys you know, defending like a well-oiled machine, uh, you know, and uh, keep in mind that Georgia Southern was a team that spread you out and went sideline to sideline. Now, mm-hmm. Illinois doesn't necessarily do that all the time. They still like to run the football uh, and, and, and do some power, but they do a lot of different stuff. So, um, but again, as a defensive coordinator, you've got to look at all their schemes, all the things they're doing and simplify it enough to say, okay, this might not be the perfect defense, but it'll work. Okay. This is a defense that should be able to defend that. They still have 11 guys. We still have 11 guys. So you still got to play that way. And if you keep that basic instinct so you can drill in the players, hey, this stuff's going to all, this is all window dressing, okay? It's still the same thing. You still got three wide receivers over here and one over there or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the key that has to be done by our coaching staff. And we've got to sell that so well to our kids that they begin to believe it and, and then can execute. 
Yeah. Well, and I mentioned uh, when we talked about the Oklahoma game that I did see um, a, a bit of an improvement in terms of tackling, in terms of uh, going for the legs and at least slowing people down, things like that. Um, so I'm hoping to see a continuation of that uh, in this game or even better, you know, just proper full tackles. But I'll take the leg holding, you know, if that's what we can do on a short well, basis. Right? Well, but. We, I, I, I mean, there was also a great deal of discussion, and and and, and certainly as I watched the the game, um, uh, the amount of uh, missed tackles. Again, schematically, we had some gap fit problems, which we've had all year for sure. But I think an even greater issue has has been our tackling, and then effort. I mean, in the Oklahoma game, the thing that was frustrating was the number of guys that would give up on plays, right? And that that's been very high, very frequently highlighted in social media by other Nebraska fans is, uh, you know, they've broke down the film and they've, they've put little twit, uh, tweets and stuff like that, showing little snippets of film that are just embarrassing. Right. And, uh, here's my one thing that I'm a little disappointed in. Uh, we've now had two weeks, we had an off week and in preparation for this game, I would have hoped that maybe we would have been a little more bold in making some personnel changes. I would have, I would have taken the starting job away from some more people, especially some of the defensive starters and some of the offensive line starters. And just to give other guys a chance, right? Um, because the ones that have been doing it have been either uh, both executing poorly or just flat out not giving great effort. And I'd rather have a less athletic person who's giving 110% and is likely uh, more likely to embrace execution at a high level than a guy who's more athletic, who's, you know, um, mailing it in um, about a quarter of the time or something. Right. So uh, I look at the depth chart, which I'm going to praise Mickey Joseph for actually publishing a depth chart, something Scott Frost didn't do historically during his time um, and giving us some insight into what our our team looks like but you know uh, our defensive line starters same guys same people you know we have we have four scholarship players and we're starting a, a walk-on who's 275 pounds in the big 10 okay a 275 pound defensive tackle doesn't work in the big 10 i'm sorry it doesn't right and 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 so those are the kinds of things that i look at and think okay we haven't done enough yet you know, I thought that this off week would have would have led to that. Now, maybe they're going to end up playing, you know, the actual snaps, the actual number of snaps that players play maybe will be very different than that depth chart. Right. I don't know. I was going to say uh, my, what I might anticipate is that you'll see those same starters out there. Um, but if uh, it's not working out, I think you'll see <clears throat> uh, Mickey Joseph and Bill Bush be more willing to sub them out for those second team guys uh, than Scott or Eric Shenander showed to be. You know what? I would agree. I, 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 if we don't, then I, I, I'll, I'll be, he- you know, it's a head scratcher. Yeah. I, I, that's the only thing I can hope for based on this depth chart is that they're saying, okay, we're not going to immediately shred the, the team's um, confidence by making everybody think, okay, we're just going to strip every starter uh, their job and that sort of stuff. We're going we're gonna to let them earn it or – lose it on the field, right? We're going to continue to evaluate now that we are in control, mm-hmm. are in command. Um, and maybe that's what they're going to do. And that's what I'm hoping. 
I'm hoping that that's what we're going to see is that uh, if, if uh, some of these defensive linemen uh, are not giving that hundred percent effort that they get pulled. But what bothers me is we got, we got four scholarship athletes that are sitting on the sidelines. You're telling me they're that much worse than, than this walk-on kid who hasn't been doing all that great. Who's been being blown out himself. You're telling me he's the guy you want to start, you know? So it's just stuff like that, that, that just, you know, I don't get to see practice, so I don't know, but, but it sure makes me scratch my head and wonder. <laughs> right. Um, so talking about a score prediction for this game, um, as we mentioned oh. l- last week, um, this is a very critical game because uh, this is the first of the, you know, everyone expected that we would o- lose to Oklahoma, you know, so we can't be too mad about that. But this is the stretch of the games that Mickey has a real chance to win and we should be able to win if we're executing well. Um because at the end of our schedule, we have Iowa and Michigan and Wisconsin. And so it gets a lot harder. Minnesota, right. Minnesota, exactly. yes. So, um, and this particular game is at home, as we mentioned, at night on homecoming. Whereas the next two games against Rutgers and Purdue are both away. So if we can't beat right. Indiana at home, our chances for wins remaining in this season is looking uh, even more slim. Uh, I, I I would agree. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and th- my my general impression is that because Indiana has this fast pace offense and to your point, uh, we clearly struggled against that with Georgia Southern. Uh, I think they will be able to score some points on us, you know, and the defense won't have magically, you know, flipped a switch in this two week period. Um, right. But also uh, they've shown in some of their games, that they also will give up points. You know, they've won several games by like three points, you know, giving up like 30 to Western Kentucky and things like that. Um, so I would like to think that we'll be able to score two um, and it'll be similar to the Georgia Southern game. And that it's about who can, um, you know, score more by the end of the game. Uh, and I'm going to hope that with the adjustments, since that game uh, that we will be able to pull it out this time uh, and get our W uh, to hopefully start putting things in the right direction. Okay. I, I, I like your logic. What's your score prediction? Um, I'll go ahead and say that it'll be a close win um, that we will pull out the W. Um, so I will say, uh, 35 Nebraska to uh, 31 Indiana. Okay. Uh, I agree with your logic. I think if we win this game, I I see this going two ways. I see us having some success early, which builds some confidence and keeps the fans in the stadium energized. And then it's a night game, which is always a electric kind of environment in Lincoln. So, um, that all lends itself to positive results for Nebraska. If, on the other hand, we make mistakes early, either offensively or defensively, that, that, that create either easy scores for um, Indiana or, um, um, you know, we don't score because we struggle to even get first downs or whatever, um, then I could see Indiana running, running away and hide, you know, and beating us by three touchdowns, right? But I'm going to... I'm going to be an optimist like you this week because uh, I want this so bad to ha- to actually go well for the, the players, especially our seniors, and, and for Mickey as well. I mean, even if he doesn't get the head coaching job here, uh, you know, I, 
I had forgotten, this is a, just a quick side note, Alex. I had forgotten that, you know, Dave Aranda was the defensive coordinator at LSU when Mickey and Billy Bush were there. All right. And so the idea of, of Mickey not getting the job as head coach, but getting the job as uh, uh, um, uh, Dave Aranda being enticed to Nebraska and then him retaining those two guys as part of his new staff, uh, uh, knowing that both of them are outstanding recruiters and really good coaches. Um, so uh, that would be an interesting uh, series of events. And, and I get the sense that Mickey might even embrace that. You know what I mean? He might be okay with that. Some coaches, they wouldn't be able to stay on the staff after they had been the interim head coach and didn't get chosen. I don't think Mickey's taking that approach. Well, two quick things on that point since you brought it up. Um, one, we made the point that Mickey has been a assistant coach in various forms for his whole career. He's never been a head coach. Um, well, he, he has been at a small college, right? At okay. A, he, at a, he, was, he was head coach in high school and a head coach at a small college. Okay. But it doesn't seem like that's necessarily his main ambition in his coaching career. Um, and uh, the second thing was I did see some tweet in the past two weeks um, – you know, and I think it was just a report from some guys. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But I, I think it said that um, there was in the agreement between Trev and Mickey, it was said that Mickey would stay on the staff, even if he wasn't chosen as the head coach. Um, oh. So if that's true, um, then maybe he will be sticking around in some capacity. Well, I, uh, I don't like that if, if that agreement has been reached because I don't want to hamstring in any way, shape, or form my future head coach, and I don't want my athletic director telling me, you have to keep this coach on staff. I've made a commitment to this guy that he gets to stay. Uh, I don't want that. So I don't, I don't buy that. I don't believe Trev would do that. I think that Trev might have said something to the effect of, hey, I, I'm going to put in a good word. I know you're the right kind of guy for, that I want around our program and our players, and I respect you for that. And I will certainly put in a strong word of encouragement uh, to whoever we pick as the next coach, if it's not you, uh, to um, retain you. But I'm not guaranteeing anything. Right. I mean, I could I could see that kind of conversation. Uh, the guarantee thing, I don't buy that for a minute. Yeah. Now back to back to my prediction. Um, you know, my my mind tells me, based on that depth chart and some other things, that. The, the, the bad scenario is more likely than the good scenario, but I'm going to embrace the good and uh, uh, go towards the light. And I'm going to say it's going to be Nebraska's going to score a, a lot of points, partially because I'm hopeful we're going to score some points on defense this week. We're going to get a pick six. We're going to get some turnovers that maybe translate to easy short fields for the offense. And then, the, and then our offense is going to start to find its legs a little bit um, and, and hopefully with Mickey's influence, maybe even though he's a wide receivers coach, I think he understands running the football. So I'm hoping to see a commitment to the run. Like we, like we saw in the game at Oklahoma. I mean, I, I actually like that we stayed relatively committed to the run, even as we fell behind. So I'm going to say we're going to go, uh, Nebraska 41 and, uh, Indiana 31, 10 point victory. And boy, victory. Ooh, even more optimistic than Alex. This is a rare sight. It is. <laughs> but you know what? It's my last hurrah, buddy. If if we if we dip on this one, 
you're going to hear a grumpy old man the rest of the season. <laughs> That's a warning. An even I'm gr- sending out the warning shot. An even grumpier old man, we should say. An even grumpier, <laughs> an even grumpier old man. Exactly. All right. Um, we'll we'll quickly do a uh, preview here for the other big games of Week Five of college football because now we're really getting the meat of the you know conference play um, with the different teams. Um, one that's definitely interesting is uh, number five Clemson going up, up against number ten NC State, coming right off of Clemson's near loss to Wake Forest. Uh, so they're kind of having two challenges in a row. Um, not sure if that one's home or away, but uh, that'll be interesting. I, I find it. I find it funny that we're calling NC State a challenge for Clemson. You know what I mean? It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> I, I think Clemson has been an underperformer so far this season. I thought they would bounce back from last season a little bit more than they have. So, um, yeah, I can't believe they're still ranked number five <laughs> after the way they played at Wake Forest. I would, I, I really expected them to tumble in the in the rankings a little bit, and they didn't get punished for that ugly victory. That's true. Uh, it is at Clemson. I just checked. Um, yeah. So that does help them. Yeah, I, I think Clemson wins and I, and probably wins big. All right. That's my prediction on that one. Fair enough. Um, another big one is uh, Alabama versus Arkansas. Uh, Arkansas coming off of that uh, tough loss to Texas A and M. But again, as I mentioned, uh, it was really wasn't a self inflicted loss. Um, so, you know, if they came in and executed their game plan against Alabama, right? Alabama showed against uh, Texas earlier uh, that they do have some vulnerabilities. But at the same time, we mentioned how that was the perfect scenario for Nick Saban to get his team into gear and not have them lose. Um, so what are your thoughts? Do you think there's a chance? No, not this year. Uh, I, I, because of those circumstances, I think Alabama rolls. Roll. It's roll tide time. Yep. It is at Arkansas. So that's something. I, I know, but I, I, I still, um, I, I'm going to tell you, Nick Saban is going to have his boys ready. And, and, and if you're, uh, the, the thing is probably the hardest thing to do in defeating Nick Saban is to try to run power football against his defense, mm-hmm. right? That, that's, that's, that's just rolling right into the strength of his history. And, uh, I, uh, I don't see him letting that letting that happen. So and and their their offense really started clicking since the Texas game. So I I have a feeling that's going to be somewhat of a lopsided affair. And the problem is uh, Arkansas's offense is very difficult to be successful from behind. So the only way that thing stays close is if Arkansas is able to have success early against Alabama's defense that allows them to stay in the game. Because if all of a sudden they're down fourteen in the first quarter or worse, then the wheels come off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like to think that Arkansas could keep it close, but that Alabama will win at the end of the day. Um, so I think that's going to be my prediction there. Uh, but the big game that we're going to give a score for is uh, Oklahoma State versus Baylor, uh, another matchup of two potential uh, coaching options for Nebraska. Uh, interestingly, it is at Baylor, um, and Oklahoma State uh, hasn't really played anybody of significance so far. They're 3-0, and uh, and they had a bye, like us, um, in week four. So they've had two weeks to prepare for this game with Baylor, but it is at Baylor. So I think that makes it interesting. I think it makes it interesting. And I, I want to clarify for anybody who might be listening. 
we're not saying these two are legitimate candidates for the Nebraska job. I would describe these as hopeful candidates in the eyes of Nebraska fans. I mean, uh, in either case, it would take a monumental amount of pile of money and uh, an incredible sales job by Trev to get either one of these coaches to even seriously consider the Nebraska job. Because uh, both of them are staring down the barrel of a, of a new conference that appears stable enough to survive the departures of Oklahoma and Texas uh, because they backfilled and they now have a nice solid 12 team league. Uh, and those two schools among a few others probably view themselves as potentially the ones who can become the heir apparent powers of that, of that new conference structure. And so why would I ever want to leave that? Right. If I was a coach, that's why, the, that's why I really think it would be very difficult for Nebraska to entice either one of those coaches away. Although I've been upfront this whole conversation that Dave Aranda is my first guy, right? Because, you know, obviously, uh, 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 what's his name? Urban Meyer would be great if he didn't have so much damn baggage. And I don't really think Urban Meyer has any interest in doing the massive rebuild that Nebraska is. Right. Dave Aranda, on the other hand, uh, might still be young enough and aggressive enough to want to take on a challenge like that. Maybe. Um, the, the issue is, is money and, and opportunity for success. I think he probably has way better chance of consistently getting into the 12 team playoff. That's going to be established by staying in the big 12 than he ever would, uh, trying to fight USC and whatever organizational structure we end up with in the big 10. Right. Yeah. So with all that coaching crap uh, aside, um, I agree with you. I I think, Baylor at home uh, makes Baylor particularly tough. But the fact that Oklahoma State had two weeks to prepare um, leads me to believe that they're going to have some new stuff. It's going to be a tough battle. I think it's going to be a classic Big 12 high-scoring game. Uh, I'm going to say both teams are going to score 40 points or more. And uh, it's literally going to be one of those that, you know, whoever has the ball last wins (laughs) uh, type of thing. And so... Um, uh, but I'm going to go with Baylor. All right. You're going with Baylor. Uh, what's your yeah. score then? Oh man. I'm going to say, uh, let's say, uh, 41 to 45 Baylor, 45, um, um, Oklahoma state 41. Okay. Yeah. Well, I will say that, uh, Oklahoma state is the higher ranked team, uh, in yeah. terms of the polling, they're number nine versus Baylor being number 16, uh, though, right. once again, they haven't beat anybody of significance yet. So this will be their first real test. Right. Where where Baylor just got done beating a very competitive Iowa State squad um, at Iowa State, right? Very true. That game was at Iowa State, if I remember correctly. It was. So they've gone on the road and, and won an important Big 12 battle. Um, so this will be interesting to see how Oklahoma State can respond to that. Um, and you know, I might be all wet, uh, you know, thinking back, Oklahoma state's defense was surprisingly good, uh, last season, if I remember correctly, at least at times. And so they might have more than I'm giving them credit for on D de- on the defensive side of the ball, but that's why they play the game. It'll be interesting to watch. Yep. Well, I think I'm going to uh, go a little different for you. I'm going to predict that with the bye week um, even though they're playing away, 
that Oklahoma State will come prepared for this game, you know, especially it being their first big game of the year, right? Surely they've had this circled on their schedules in the uh, fall practice and everything. Um, and I think, uh, to your point, it will be a bit lower scoring because I did see you know, good things out of Baylor's defense against Iowa State. Um, so I think they'll be able to slow down Oklahoma State. Um, but Oklahoma State may be able to slow down Baylor as well. Uh, so I'll go a little bit o- lower scoring uh, and say that uh, Oklahoma State ends up winning, uh, let's say, uh, 35 to Baylor's uh, 28. Uh, I, you know what? I could see both of those outcomes very easily happening. Yep, that's what makes really it a good could. game. Yep, yep. Well, and, and, and actually, uh, because think about this, because Oklahoma – and Texas already have a loss. Um, um, now Texas is not in conference. Oh yeah, it is. They have. They both have an in-conference loss. Right. So, so uh, they're going to play each other. Which so whoever loses that game uh, between Oklahoma and Texas already has two conference losses. So if if you're Kansas State, for example, you've already beaten Oklahoma. If you can simply avoid getting beaten by somebody else who you're better than and, and you lay an egg, as long as you don't do that, Kansas State might find themselves at the end of the year playing in Oklahoma State or something for the championship, right? I mean, I could see that happening. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Texas because uh, I, I just don't view Texas Tech as all that great of a team. Uh, I could be wrong, but – and the fact that Texas battled, struggled with that, with that opponent – makes me think Texas might be a team that loses again, right? So, well, I don't know. I could see any of these teams. The Big 12 seems really wide open to me right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, yeah, interesting. Well, I guess technically Texas and Oklahoma are supposed to stay in the Big 12 for one more year before they leave, um, but there's a lot of speculation that the SEC is trying to accelerate that, so they do leave for yes. the 2023 season. Right. So this and, might and be ESPN, their right. Farewell. And, and ESP, ESPN is trying to make that happen as well, right? Right. So. so, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, well, gotta love college football. Even a week without Nebraska playing, you know, there were fun games to watch, and there were. Uh, you know, we didn't have to deal with any of that kind of heartbreak. So hopefully, we'll be talking to you guys next week, talking about our second W of the year. Um, and being a bit more optimistic that uh, Mickey Joseph and the new staff can make the changes necessary. Right. And, and again, I don't have any uh, illusions that we're going to be Big Ten West champions or any of that kind of crap. But I would just like to see us start to turn that corner to where we can say, OK, we won that game. Now we have a chance to be competitive and just start ticking off wins here and there, get to five. So that late in the season in that game against Iowa, who's no world beater, okay, they're good. And again, they play sound defense and, and uh, limit errors on offense and let the other team self-destruct. And, and that has been the, the problem with Scott Frost. And again, now I, I, I more fully understand why it was happening. His team lacked discipline because he lacked discipline, right? He didn't demand it of his team because he couldn't. And, uh, and that's why... Uh, it never worked uh, where if over the course of a season, Mickey Joseph can kind of start instilling that in some guys and then they grow in confidence. 
there's still a scenario where we get to six wins in a bowl game. And at that point, at this point, that's the absolute best case scenario I could ever hope for. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah. Six wins in a bowl game after the start we've had uh, would be a great uh, turnaround for Nebraska fans, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, if you out there enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you search for College Football Throwdown, you can leave us a rating or a review there. Let us know what you think of the podcast. We always love getting comments from the fans. So thank you out there for listening. And thank you, Dad, for joining me for this episode. Until next time, go Big Red. Go Big Red. <laughs>